HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Truly local beer. Today on the Farm Report, you have tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are on the line with Andrea Stanley from Valley Malt. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's so great to have you on. So I'm excited. Um, you are joining us for the second in our five-part series on growing beer. We're taking a look at beer as an agricultural product. And last week, we talked with Mary Itzit, uh, who is president of the New York City Craft Brewers Guild, who took us through kind of the ins and outs of making beer. And so today, we're going to move that conversation a little bit forward. And I would love to start off with a little bit of history about Valley Melt. But, I'm sorry, Valley Malt. Now, your mission is to provide the Northeast craft and home brewer with artisanal malt from locally growing grains. So how did you guys come about this this mission? How did you guys get started? Well, in 2000, my husband has been a home brewer for 10 plus years, and I've always helped him with brewing beers and been a part of developing recipes with him. And in 2000, and I have kids in the background, sorry. In 2009, we we're thinking about starting a brewery here in Hadley, Massachusetts. We live in a beautiful agricultural town and lots of farms in the area and some new um, grain growing happening in the area. Um, grains had been grown in Massachusetts and Hadley back in the uh, 16, 17, and 1800s, but really more recently haven't been. But there were a few farmers in the area that were starting to grow local wheat and local rye and oats for bakeries. And we thought, hey, let's, you know, start incorporating some of these grains into our homebrew beers, and let's think about starting a brewery where we would be making um, truly local beer, so local hops put in them and local grains. And so we started doing research about what it would take to start a brewery like this, and didn't take too long to figure out that although the grains were being grown and the hops were being grown, there was sort of this middle step of processing them, uh, and specifically for the grains, malting them. 
that wasn't something that was happening anywhere closer than in Wisconsin. And so even if we had farmers grow us local barley, we wouldn't be able to send it anywhere to have it malted. And so that's when I kind of just had this comment to my husband saying, hey, Chris, you know, I think instead of starting a brewery, we should start a malt house. And so we started looking into what it would take to start a malt house and um, just got really obsessed with the idea and, um, you know, put together a business plan and made the numbers work. And um, here we are two years later, just absolutely loving what we're doing and all of the great relationships that we're forging with farmers and brewers in the Northeast. That's awesome. And do you guys uh, still brew beer at your place? We don't. We don't have time to brew beer anymore. <laughs> but we do, um, we do have a lot of people that give us beer, so we're not, uh, we're not thirsty. You're not searching for something to drink. That's awesome. So Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, you really, your, your business and your story really touches on one of these critical issues when we look at uh, agriculture and the food supply as a whole. It's the whole infrastructure question, you know, uh, it's one thing to produce the food, but wholly another to kind of get that into a form that the, the end consumer will be ready to purchase or use. And so I think it's great that you guys kind of went with it. Um, was there anyone you looked to for models um, as to like how to how to build up your business or what size of equipment to purchase? Or I mean, how did you make some of those really basic, uh, you know, footprint decisions? Hmm. We were able to visit a small micro-maltery in Quebec called Maltery Frontenac, and there were two guys up there um, doing some micro-malting um, that was, you know, they were probably started their business about two, they were probably two years into their business when we met them. And so we got to visit them and sort of see what their process looked like and their space looked like. So that was really helpful. And then just um, because malting really is just, you know, it sort of is an agricultural business and process, we just really um, looked to uh, farmers in New York, Vermont, um, grain farmers, and mostly those two states that had been, you know, were growing organic grains for, for years and um, visited those farms just to look at their infrastructure and what kind of equipment they had and grain handling um, is a big piece of what, you know, rebuilding the infrastructure is about. So, you know, really just getting visuals and, and getting to talk with these farmers was a big part of our research and developing how we were going to start this business. And so how, I mean, how much grain can you malt in a, in a, in a given week or, I, I mean, in a period of time that kind of makes sense? Give us a sense of, you know, sure. the scope of what we're talking about. Yeah, no, a about. week is a perfect amount of time to, to give you an idea because it takes just about a week to make a batch of malt. So just to give you an idea, malt, malting is a three-step process, uh, the, and it takes about seven days. So the first two days is soaking the grain and getting it to hydrate. The next three to four days is sprouting the grain, getting it to germinate. And then the last day to two days is kilning the grain, so drying it back down and applying some temperature to it to give it sort of that nice, malty, toasty flavor. And so right now we are able to produce about 8,000 pounds a week of malt. And uh, 
when we first started our first system, we were capable of producing 2,000 pounds. So okay. we started kind of small. And so I want to I wanna come back to that process, but before we move in a little bit more in depth in that direction, so 8,000, I know that, you know, beer recipes, you, you know, really run the gamut um, with regards to how much grain or how much hops, but can you, do you have a rough sense of, you know, 8,000 pounds of grain is enough to make, you know, how much beer? Do you have a sense or? About 4,000 gallons of beer. Okay. So it's roughly two pounds of malt to one gallon of beer, but that's really going to vary depending on how, um, you know, the alcohol content Content of of the beer. beer. That makes sense. Yeah. So you guys do, um, in addition to running the malting business now, are you growing grains as well or are you buying everything in? We are. We, We started three years ago saying, you know, we have to at least grow a little bit of barley here on our property. Um, so we started growing some heirloom varieties just literally in small little garden patches um, just to see the process of what this grain looked like as it was growing. And, of course, we both fell in love with that aspect of what we're doing. And so much of what we do as a small um, business dealing with, you know, with um, – local grains is learning about what it takes to grow these grains so that when we're working with farmers, we really know what their end of the process is all about. Yeah, sure. And so um, for us to grow grains really is part of the learning process for us too, um, but it's also really fun. So now we're, let's see, so the first year we just had a garden-sized plot. Second year we had six acres and this past year we were able to acquire uh, a lease for um, roughly 40 acres. Wow so you guys are growing on over 40 acres and then you're also working with a couple other farmers right? Yeah I would say this year we probably are working with maybe five farmers um, purchasing, you know, quite a bit of grain from them. And then we probably have another five to 10 farmers that, you know, we buy smaller amounts of grain from. And those are more your vegetable farmers, your organic, you know, CSA vegetable farmers that are just looking to maybe grow an acre or two of grains in rotation on their farm. Yeah, that's one of the things that I found was really interesting on your website. You talk a little bit about barley being an excellent crop for giving nutrients back to the soil because the roots um, can go up to six and a half feet deep, which really helps with uh, soil tilling and and erosion control. Um, And this concept of rotation essentially means that while certain parts of the season, the farmer would be producing maybe a mix of vegetables, during another part of the season, they may use barley as like a rotational crop to to re-impart some nutrients into the soil? And sure, then... or to even fix nutrients into the soil. So you could have a farmer could have put down, you know, some fertilizer for their vegetables, like a manure or some other kind of organic fertilizer, and maybe their vegetable crop didn't necessarily use all of that. And so when you plant something like barley, the barley is actually able to fix that nitrogen, so to keep it there in the soil so that it doesn't leach out when it rains and that type of thing. And then as soon as the barley is harvested and the straw is reincorporated into the ground, um, those nutrients stay available. Now, one of the things that you also talked about was, you know, 2011 being a tough year for growing grains. Why why is that? Um, It was really wet 
in the spring. So some farmers in Vermont and New York were not even able to get out and plow their fields. They literally couldn't even drive the tracker, tractors in their fields because it was so muddy. Um, and so, some, you know, one of the keys to growing spring grains in New England is to get it in the ground in early to mid-April. Um, some farmers weren't even able to prepare their fields until the middle of May. So they already had one big strike against them in that they got the crop in too, almost too late. So that was going to reduce their yields and, and to begin with. And then we had kind of a dry period last year, and then we just had a ton of rain during the um, harvesting part of the season. So you would normally plant in early April, harvest in early to mid-July, and it just seemed like almost every single day in July and August last year, it rained. And so when it's raining, again, it's really hard to, for that grain to get nice and dry out in the field so that you can harvest it. So we ended up losing a lot of grain, or at least it ended up having to be sold for feed rather than for malting because it actually was too wet out in the field. And so the quality just, you know, you can end up with molds forming on the grain or you can end up with the grain actually starting to germinate in the field. So that's kind of what made last year a really difficult year. Yeah, you have the harvesting issues. Now, is it similar? I mean, I know with hay, usually you want it to have, you know, I think it's like three three dry days before you harvest. Is that a similar time frame for barley or other grains? Like you want, how long do you need for them to, to you know, have days, consecutive days without rain? Yeah, I think with hay, you know, they cut the hay and leave it in the field, and then if it's dry for those three days, it, you know, dries down really well. With barley or other grains, um, usually it's just straight combined. Um, only one farmer I know of in New York actually cuts it first and lets it sort of dry, um, lay down and dry in the field. But ideally what you want is... Um, so you've got the grain growing. In the beginning, it kind of just looks like a piece of, you know, grass growing up, but then eventually these longer pieces of straw start um, growing, and then you see a head forming, and that's where the, the seed of the grain is. It's the head of the grain. And once those heads have kind of headed out and you start seeing them, they start filling in, and then they start drying out. And so in the months that it takes for that grain to dry out, it's nice if you have um, hot, dry weather so that they dry out as quickly as possible. And that can, that's what will make a really nice quality grain. So for this year, we had great, a great season because we did have a lot of dry weather in the end of June be, uh, and almost all of July. Wow. So um, you know, I, I, it's kind of a funny question, funny realization for me when you said straight combining. I have this moment where I'm like, man, combines and combining is a term I've heard for years. But I actually, I don't know what that means. Have you ever seen a combine? Yeah. What it looks like? Yeah. So usually it almost looks like a big, um, you know, it's a big machine with kind of this sort of sickle bar mower on it. And the grain gets cut down below, it gets fed up into, um, 
a sort of threshing unit of the combine, and so it kind of gets threshed, and then you end out, the, the machine ends out spitting the straw out the side and sifting off the, um, the berries of grain or the kernels of grain into a bin, and that's really how you harvest grain is, um, you know, it all happens at once. It gets cut, it gets threshed, and it gets kind of cleaned and, and goes into the bin of the combine. Um, the older way, you know, if you look at old pictures of, say, you know, you go to an art museum and you see pictures of how people used to harvest grains in the field, um, usually they would take a, um, a scythe and they would cut the grain and they would put them into these little stacks where they would dry out in the field in these pretty little upright stacks. And then, after it dried out, they would um, uh, thresh it and, and clean it. Yeah. So, now, com- I have to imagine that combine, I mean, I know from seeing them, it's a pretty heavy-duty piece of equipment. Is that something, um, you know, kind of with this conversation around infrastructure, do you guys purchase a combine? Do you rent a combine? Like, how does that work? Both. We, so one of the things we realized early on was that we could find farmers to grow for us, but a lot of them weren't going to make the investment in the equipment because there's quite a bit of equipment that you need to grow grains. And so we decided that if we wanted a good supply of barley or local grains, that we would have to sort of make that investment and the farmers we were working with could have access to that equipment. So we purchased a small combine. It's um, capable of of harvesting about four feet at a time. Um, That's sort of the the head size on it. And then, um, so that's just for smaller fields. That's, you know, maybe one to five acres. That's sort of the perfect size for that little combine we have. And it's old. It's from the 1950s. Um, But then we also have a combine in our area that uh, has a 30-foot head on it, so it's capable of harvesting a lot more, a lot faster. And um, we just pay that, that guy to come in and combine fields for us. And that works out really well. Nice. And how do people talk about grain? I mean, is it sold by the pound, by the by the bushel? Like, what's the language around when you go to purchase grain from a farmer? It's you. Most most people um, talk in bushels. Um, We talk either in bushels or in tons or pounds. You know, a ton is two thousand pounds. Um, it's kind of hard to train yourself to talk in bushels. So a bushel weight of barley is roughly around 48 pounds. So, you know, then you got to do a whole bunch of math in your head to try to figure out (laughs) what somebody's talking about when they say they got 30 bushels to the acre, you know, then you've got to do a bunch of, a bunch of math. Um, but yeah, I would say the majority of like the older farmers talk in bushels. Um, and you know, yeah, everybody kind of has different language for, or what you know and they're harvesting when you when you decide to work with a farmer is it kind of a, a at this point you know you're a new business is it like a handshake agreement where you're like yeah well you know you grow it we'll buy it or do you set up a contract or you know it really depends i would say pretty much almost everybody it's phone calls handshakes you know i mean just really great 
trusting relationships. Um, and these are relationships over the last three years that we didn't just jump into. You know, neither us or the farmer jumped into. We started, you know, small with each one of them and have been growing with them over, or they've been growing with us, you know, however you want to look at it, over the last three years. So, um, so that's really good. And then if somebody wants a written contract, um, just to, you know, put them at ease or maybe to help them get some money to help build their infrastructure, um, we do that too. So nice to be flexible. And that's like one of the great things about having kind of uh, personal relationships is you can figure out what's going to work for everyone. Well, we are on the line. If you've just tuned in, we're on the line with Andrea Stanley of Growing Beer. I'm sorry, a Valley Malt as part of our five-part uh, series on growing beer. We're going to take a quick break, but stay tuned. When we come back, we will learn about how to malt beer. You're listening to Cookies on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Just rings Pastures is a 146-year-old multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meat that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. Got Stitcher? Heritage Radio Network is on it, so get it. Stitcher is an award-winning provider of news and talk radio for your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. All right, you are listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. You've tuned in to the second of our five-part series on growing beer. We are speaking with Andrea Stanley of Valley Malt. Um, so before the break, you really um, took us through kind of the grain growing process. And I wanted to move in to talk a little bit more about the malting process. So you said earlier in the segment that the first step is steeping. Now, you take the dried grain and the steeping process is just putting it in water and letting it sit for a couple of days. Is there anything special about the water or the temperature or um, the equipment that you use? Could I do that like in my bathtub if I wanted to you know, steep my own grain in, in my house? Um, yeah, that could be a new form of, uh, that could be a new spa treatment. <laughs> 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 a barley, a barley malt bath. Um, yeah, we just use, um, so, so there is some special aspects to, to steeping the grain. So steeping is the first process. So you take a clean grain like barley, you want to, it's probably, so, a lot about malting uh, really is three things. It's time, temperature, and moisture. So those are three critical sort of aspects um, that we're, you know, always uh, 
trying to um, monitor. And so when we have grain coming from a farm or, you know, in storage, um, it's usually at 12% moisture. And so that means that it's pretty dormant and pretty stable at that moisture. You could store it for, you know, a year and it probably wouldn't change at all. Um, so with steeping, what we're doing is we're, our objective is to bring it from 12% moisture up to roughly 45% moisture. And so what we need is to soak the grain to have it uptake water and increase the moisture content to, to roughly 45%. So what happens is we do an initial soak. So usually, um, so in our malt system, we have a false bottom. Um, which means that the grain is sitting on something like, if you were a brewer, um, would be your wedge wire bottom. So it's kind of just a, if you were doing it in your kitchen, you could use a colander. But basically, you want to steep the grain, and then you want to drain out the water after about eight hours. And in that first eight-hour soak, you're achieving um, a moist, usually you're, you're getting a moisture content of around 25 to 30%. And what happens at that point is once the grain swells up in moisture to 25 or 30%, it actually um, breaks out of its dormancy and starts to grow. It becomes alive and it starts to respirate, which means that it's emitting CO2 and it needs oxygen in order to grow and be viable. So. The re so in that 48-hour steeping process, it's not just underwater the entire time. It's a series of steeping, air rest, steeping, air rest, steeping, air rest. And we do that. We do about three steeps and three air rests in our, in our um, steeping process. And um, during the air rests, the grain is able to, um, you know, receive oxygen and, and we're able to, um, through airflow, take off some of that CO2 that's um, being emitted. And by the third steep, usually we're at 45% moisture, and we start seeing what's called the chit, which is a little white dot at the end of each kernel. And that little white dot is the beginning of the rootlets of the plant starting to, to grow, starting to emerge from the kernel of the grain. So it's really good as a maltster when you're in your malt vessel and it's at the end of the steeping and you see, you look in the vessel and you see all these little white dots. That's always a really good feeling and a good sign. Yeah, you kind of attain it. So if you weren't to, if you weren't to kind of go back and forth between the, the water and the air, you would essentially you would be kind of... Drown cooked. the grain. Okay. Yep. Um, and then, so the germinating process is just kind of letting it hang out and continue to grow for a little bit? Yep. So letting it grow um, as uniformly as possible. So in germination, we're trying to keep the grain at a pretty cool temperature because if it gets up to warmer temperatures, the grain will start to germinate really rapidly and kind of unevenly. So we're kind of controlling the germination a little bit through temperature. And we're also applying um, some, you know, gentle airflow to the grain, again, to make sure that the oxygen is, you know, getting to the grain and the CO2 is being emitted. Um, and How do you know when it's done? You know when it's done um, just by using your five senses, so looking at it, feeling it, smelling it. Um, 
you know, some traditional ways. There's a, a technique called rubbing, rubbing out the grain. So basically you take, you know, a number of kernels um, at, between your thumb and your forefinger and you kind of rub it out on your finger. And if you see a nice white chalky substance that sort of sticks to your to your index finger, then you kind of know that um, that you have good modification because that's kind of like the starchy granules that will eventually turn into sugars and be fermented. Um, another way that we look, so that's one way, that's one tactile way. And then also we can crack the kernels open and look at the uh, what's called the acrospire, which is the main shoot of the plant. And usually when that acrospire is three-quarters to one full length of the grain, um, that's another indicator that um, the plant has grown to a point where it has um, modified properly but hasn't grown enough. If you continue to let it grow, then the plant in, in it needing to grow would be taking up some of those starches and sugars that you want to preserve for the brewer. Okay, so you so want to take it like, like this sweet spot where yeah. you know you want it to go long enough, but you don't want it to go too long. Exactly. Great. So we've come to the end of the germinating process, and now it's time for the kiln drying. And take us through that. Like I know from speaking with Mary last week that you can uh, you know mulch things to a, a really wide range. So give us the basics, and then talk a little bit about how you decide how you know how multi to mulch your malt. Sure. Um, well, we generally make base malts, so that is either a pale or a pilsner. A pale is a little bit darker and toastier than a pilsner. Um, a pilsner would be more associated with um, Belgian beers and lagers, and a pale would be more the color and flavor you would expect from a, a, a pale ale or a, like a British ale. Um, and really, it's just the difference of the kilning temperature um, toward the end. So um, initially, when we're, you know, we decided germination is all done and we want to start kilning, um, you know, essentially, we're kind of killing the plant at that point to dry it down. But we also, we don't want to kill these really important enzymes that have been growing in the plant as well. So we can't just throw a whole lot of heat at it and dry it out that way. We actually have very low, you know, low heat, high airflow that kilns our grain. And... Um, in the beginning, and then in the last um, eight to ten hours of the kilning is usually when we can get higher temperatures up to like 190 if we want to make a pale malt. Um, some of the other varieties that Mary was talking about are specialty malts, and I would say, you know, that's probably only about 10% of what we make here because when a brewer's brewing a beer, they're mostly using base malts, and then they're using small portions of specialty malts to just get little tweaks in flavor and color. And I, that is um, kind of a cool thing you guys do do, like a, a, a barley CSA. So if I wanted yep. to sign up, uh, you would send me a... a I mean, I guess, tell me a little bit about how that works and how often you would receive grains for a home brewer. Okay, yeah. So we started the Malt of the Month Club. This is our second year. And we had, the first year we had 50 shares. This year we have 100 shares. And basically somebody can purchase a share, which will entitle them to two 50-pound sacks of malt and then six five-pound 
bags of specialty malts. And so the two big sacks are um, the pale and the pilsner, like I was mentioning earlier, which are the base malts. And then the specialty malts can range from, um, so we might take a barley malt, like a pale malt, and put it in our drum roaster and, you know, get it to the point where it's almost black. And um, that would be kind of a like a choc- what you would call a chocolate malt. And so that would give you a darker beer and a beer with some, um, you know, sort of more you know, flavors that you would associate with a porter or a pilsner. and th- I'm sorry, a porter or a um, stout. And then other specialty malts are malts that we're making with unusual grains. And there are a lot of unusual grains being grown in this area because farmers just like to grow, try to grow different things. So we've malted for our Malt of the Month Club grains like spelt, buckwheat, uh, millet, um, emmer. We malt a heirloom wheat called red fife. We malt rye. Um, this past month, I uh, one of the specialty malts was an amber rye. So I took a regular rye malt and I uh, roasted it to kind of an amber profile. Um, so that you know was kind of a unique specialty malt that we made. Wow. And so some of the bigger malt houses, you know, in our country today, there's really only about five large malt houses that exist. Um, there are a few other small micro malt houses popping up, but really um, the big malt houses don't necessarily, you know, do a lot of creative new things. And so that's kind of where we're excited about being a small malt house because we have the ability to, to try new things like malting buckwheat or corn. Oh, um, stay tuned for that. So, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today and taking us through the welcome. world of malt. Um, you can find more info about um, Valley Malt at www.valleymalt.com. If you are a member of the Heritage Radio Network, you get 5% off at the Brooklyn Homebrew, which carries their malts. And then stay tuned uh, in the upcoming series of Growing Beer. We will speak with um, David from Empire Brewing. They use Valley Malt Grains to make a wheat wine. We'll also speak with Carrie from Good Nature Brewing, who uses some of their grains to make an Irish-style red ale. And those and more will be explored in the next three episodes of The Farm Report, where we look at beer as an agricultural product. Once again, uh, if you miss the live podcast, If you miss a live show, everything is podcasted through iTunes or available on Stitcher. You can find out more about us by visiting www.heritageradionetwork.org. Email us with any questions at info at heritageradionetwork.org. And don't be afraid to click that donate button and become a member so you can get your 5% off and start making beer. Stay tuned. Uh, Right after the show, we'll have the Grow Grow NYC fart... Something. We'll have something that's going to be exciting. I'm going to learn how to say it. It's the Grow NYC market update. <laughs> Jack is enjoying my fobbles. Thank you so much for your great engineering and producing and speech lessons after the show. Stay tuned.
What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right, you've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network, and we are bringing you the Grow NYC Market Update. We are on the line with Liz Carollo. She's a publicity coordinator for New York City Green Markets. Liz, what's on the way out? What's exciting and new? What's not to be missed this week? Hey, Erin. Um... Well, on its way out right now are stone fruit, melons, some of the summer veg. We don't get our first frost in New York, hopefully until late September, early October. Um, But as soon as that cold weather hits, we'll see a drop in the tomatoes, cucumbers, some of the less hardy uh, food at the market. So you want to get out there and stock up um, while that stuff is still available. But then coming in, I mean, this week pumpkins arrived, which um, not everyone is totally ready for, but it's still exciting to see them at the market. They're so beautiful. Uh, Artichokes, tons of potato varieties, Vikings, Red Norland, Adirondack Reds. You can get red, purple, white potatoes, yellow potatoes. You can get all kinds. Um, and they're all really tasty. They're not bred to have a really thick um, skin, so you, co- you don't have to peel them or anything. Just cut them up, put a little olive oil on them, cook them, and they're delicious. And lots of apples and pears are kind of starting to arrive. Um, I would say the food not to miss this week are artichokes. You can steam them, dip the leaves into melted butter. You can peel off the outer tougher leaves and trim the tops and fry them. But they're delicious um, and and they're only at a few markets, so uh, so you got to get out there and get them, and they're only here for a little while. Um, coming up, we have pumpkins and winter squash. For me, fall is my favorite time of year because I'm not a particularly good cook, but the food is so hearty and substantial that you can kind of pick anything at the market, cut it up, roast it, a little olive oil and salt, and you're going to have a really delicious meal. You don't have to do very much. You just have to turn on your oven pretty much. That's it. Um, let's see. The product that I wanted to highlight this week is, with artichokes is John Schmidt of Muddy River Farms. He's in the Black Dirt region of Orange County, New York, and has these beautiful, sweet artichokes. He sells them at Union Square on Fridays, Poe Park in the Bronx on Tuesdays, Cortelio in Brooklyn on Sundays, so you can find John's really, um, really tasty artichokes. In all the boroughs. Awesome. Thanks for that update, Liz. So just to recap, if you're a stone fruit fanatic and you need your melons, get them now because time is running out. Don't miss the red, white, and blue potatoes. Probably great for a lovely Labor Day feast. And artichokes, not to be missed. Check out John Schmidt of Muddy River Farms. What about events? What's happening at the markets that we should be making sure to check out this week? Yeah, um, starting September 1st, we are a sponsor of NOFA, the Northeast Organic Farming Association's um, New York Locavore Challenge. So we know, you know, all the listeners out there are avid green market fans, and I know that, and I just want to encourage them to continue shopping. September is our glory month at the market. There is so, it is just so, it's so bountiful. And just to encourage all the customers to try something new, take an ingredient you've never tasted before and cook it host a seasonal potluck, learn how to can, prepare an all-local meal, you know, buy local book, try local beer, which we now have available at the market, plant a fall garden, just go out on a limb, do something that you've never done before, um, and then also just continue to shop at the market. But uh, you can sign up through NOFA's website um, and and be registered, and then you can submit uh, photos and kind of a description of what you're doing to us. 
and we'll, we're going to pick winners to get a market bag full of goodies so people can email me directly and all that info is available on our website. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds good. Actually, the Heritage Radio Network is on board for the Locavore Challenge. You should join us on September 27th at the Heritage Radio Network offices. We're hosting an all-local potluck, so anyone willing to bring a dish made with locally produced goods or maybe a delicious locally produced beer or wine is welcome to come. Meet the staff, hang out a little bit. That's the 27th, so email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org for more details. You had one other event coming up, I think, something uh, over at the New School, my my old alum. Yeah, we are doing a labeling. It's a part of our Fall Educated Eater series that we do every fall. We have three Educated Eater panels. The first one is going to be What's Behind the Label? Um, We did this same one five or so years ago, and it was a packed house, and already the... um, we're selling tickets like crazy. So, you know, people are really interested in knowing what's the difference between something that's labeled natural or, um, you know, animal welfare approved, organic, certified, naturally grown. You know, what do all those labels mean? So we're going to explain all of it and have some experts up to answer um, people's questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that update. Uh, If you're out there and you want to know more about the farmers, the market, or volunteer opportunities, you can check out uh, GrowNYC's website. It's www.grownyc.org. And you can tune in next week for another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. It's